Good afternoon, everyone. Today's actually presidential elections in Liberia, and there is a very real likelihood that someone who worked as the international investigator on the Charles Taylor defense team, Winston Tubman, is likely to win that election and house Helen Johnson Sirleaf. Because, to my mind, Helen Johnson Sirleaf, whilst to be applauded for being the first female president of an African country, nonetheless is highly unpopular in Liberia. In contrast to Charles Taylor, the warlord with blood on his hands, which according to a WikiLeaks cable discovered in December of last year, is still extremely popular in Liberia. And in fact, I assure you that were he to be acquitted and the verdicts are expected towards the end of this month or next month, and were he to return to Liberia, he would win such an election, I assure you. And one of the reasons for Helen Johnson Sirleaf's unpopularity is because she's perceived by many ordinary Liberians as being in the pocket of the West. And in many ways, that is my starting point. Because I was a newcomer to international criminal law when I was approached in July 2007 to take on the defense of Charles Taylor. I was telling this story earlier. What happened was I was going through the security check at uh, Heathrow Airport on my way to Jamaica for a funeral when my mobile went and it was the principal defender at the special court for Sierra Leone. He was in a bit of a panic because on the 4th of June, about a month before, Taylor's then defense team was sacked by him. And here we had this high-profile trial, the highlight of the special court for Sierra Leone, which was about to come off the rails. Hence the call, would you be willing to take on Taylor's defense? I'd become rather bored over the 15 years or so leading up to taking on that assignment <clears throat> because I'd spent much of that preceding 15 years around the United Kingdom defending gangsters for gangland killings, assassinations and the like. And I thought to myself, what a better progression than to go from gangsters, national gangsters that is, to a so-called international gangster. That would be the pinnacle of my defense career, so I took it on. However, my experience in this field of law, because hitherto I'd had no connection whatsoever with international criminal law. Yes, I'd been doing criminal defense work for 25 years, but I'd never ventured into this field of expertise before. But my experiences over the last four years, particularly following the United States and NATO's operations in Libya, has led me to believe that the following propositions are true. 
one, that NATO and the United States have embarked on a project to establish themselves as the global enforcer of international legal norms. Secondly, that this role as world policemen has been adopted to protect what are seen as vital Western interests, particularly in the new scramble for Africa and its resources. Thirdly, I submit the humanitarian intervention is the fig leaf behind which the United States and NATO, aka the international community, make its true, masks its true intentions and goals, utilizing where necessary the legitimating function of the United Nations Security Council. Fourthly, I submit that the enforcement of legal norms is first of all mediated by relationships of relative power. Secondly, that it's selective in its application. And thirdly, that in some circumstances, it is unsuited to the historical, social, cultural, and other practical realities present, present in many of the societies in which they are sought to be imposed. So let's deal with proposition number one, the global policeman. One of the essential and fundamental difficulties which have historically faced the idea of international criminal law is the absence of the machinery to enforce it. Lacking its own enforcement machine mechanism, international tribunals have relied upon cooperating states to execute its arrest warrants and bring fugitives to justice. Furthermore, many states, even if willing to cooperate, often lack the capacity to execute warrants, especially in cases of ongoing conflict or when suspects can cross international borders. Moreover, the African Union has rejected the ICC's arrest warrant for its most high-profile target to date, Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. And we wait to see if the African Union, indebted as it is to Colonel Gaddafi, will apply the same reasoning in his case. Now, let me just pause for a minute. One of the things we have to consider over the coming months is when, whether any attempt will be made by NATO and the US in Libya to capture Gaddafi alive and put him on trial. My personal view is they're going to do a Bin Laden on him. And the reason why they're going to do a Bin Laden on him is this. They cannot afford for him publicly to set out the kind of dirty dealings he was involved with, with the West, and in particular with Tony Blair. 
they know that and for that reason watch this space and see whether or not Gaddafi is going to be captured alive but in any event against the background of this enforcement crisis the United States and NATO have shown an increasing willingness to fill this void from Yugoslavia through Iraq and Afghanistan and now in Libya this military alliance has begun to demonstrate a willingness to wield military force across the globe now the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair set out the reasoning behind this use of military force by the West in a speech entitled the Doctrine of the International Community delivered in Chicago on the 22nd of April 1999. He argued that post-Kosovo and economic globalization that showed that the international system had to change and I quote we're all internationalists now whether we like it or not we cannot refuse to participate in global markets if we want to prosper for prosper put make profit we cannot ignore new political ideas in other countries if we want to innovate we cannot turn our backs on conflicts and the violations of human rights with other within other countries if we still want to be secure so understand what he's saying the making of profit modernization and also national security require the use of military force on a global scale and that those factors can justify intervention in other countries in other words national sovereignty the bedrock of international law for centuries would no longer act as a bar to intervention in other countries alleged abuses of human rights could now be sufficient justification for such intervention in effect the globalization of capital to quote Marx and I quote compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production it compels them to introduce what it calls civilization which of course includes human rights into their midst i.e. to become bourgeois themselves in one word it creates a world after its own image that is to summarize you must become like us now in June 2009 at a public event in the United States the chief prosecutor of the ICC Luis Moreno Campo declared the need for special forces with rare and expensive capabilities that regional armies don't have and said that the coalition of the willing led by the United States were needed to enforce ICC arrest warrants 
More recently, special advisor to the prosecutor, Beatrice Lefrappe du Helen, declared to the United Nations, we have our shopping list of requests for assistance from the US government, which, she asserted, has to lead on one particular issue, the arrest of sought-after war criminals. Top of the shopping list for her was President al-Bashir. She opined that it would be totally legitimate, both politically and legally, for the US to be the leader in this regard. Then we have in March of this year, Stephen Rapp, former chief prosecutor at the Special Court for Sierra Leone, now the US ambassador at large for war crimes, stating that the United States is prepared to listen and to work with the ICC and go through requests that the prosecutor has. The question then arises to my mind as to what it will mean for justice and the rule of law. If international criminal tribunals, now primarily the ICC, come to be dependent on a military alliance with its own military agenda and interests, particularly in Africa and the Middle East, as its enforcement arm, particularly when the United States declares itself to be above the very law it is now being asked to enforce. They unsigned the Rome Treaty, and one can understand why. How can you, if you're an imperial power, subject yourself to the ICC when you want the ability to project your military might anywhere around the world without any check or hindrance? How, how do you? It's like the Roman Empire saying, you know, that there are restrictions on where they can send their centurions. It's complete nonsense. And yet we have this paradox. We don't, because we can't, be subject to any kind of international rules, yet we are going to be the enforcer. Now all of this has to be seen against the background of increased U.S. military engagement in Africa, particularly the new military command for the continent, AFRICOM, created in 2007. I say, and this is my argument, to secure U.S. access to Africa's oil and other mineral resources, and to challenge China's increasing commercial and political influence in the region. So in August of last year, Stars and Stripes, the US military magazine, announced in Stuttgart, Germany, the formation of a squadron of airmen to train air forces in Africa to deliver supplies and large numbers of troops into conflict zones. And in recent months, AFRICOM has added an Africa-focused Navy SEAL warfare unit and the Marines have authorized a task force focused on training militaries to counter terrorist groups across the northern part of the continent and around the Horn of Africa. Why this concentration on Africa? 
and then run alongside that the fact that every single investigation currently being conducted by the ICC is where that every single detainee awaiting trial at the ICC is from where just happens to be Africa my second proposition Western interests and the scramble for Africa. The great African writer Chinua Achebe, in his book Home and Exile, memorably says this, and I quote The outburst of European activity across the earth and over the oceans in the period we call the Age of Discovery brought Europe in one bound to the doorsteps of Africa with some dire results for African societies, chief among them the Atlantic slave trade and colonial occupation. And he continues, man is a story-making animal. He rarely passes up an opportunity to accompany his works and his experiences with matching stories. The, he the heavy task of dispossessing others cause for such a story. Let us imagine that someone has come along to take my land from me. We would not expect him to say he's doing it because of his greed or because he's stronger than I. Such a confession would brand him as a scoundrel and a bully. So he hires a storyteller with a lot of imagination to make up a more appro appropriate story which may say, for example, that the land in question could not be mine because I've shown no aptitude to cultivate it properly for maximum productivity and profitability. Thus, we do not expect the invaders of Iraq to admit that they wanted to take control of Iraqi oil resources. No, they were there to get rid of a tyrant and save the people of Iraq because that tyrant was oppressing his own people and he possessed weapons of mass destruction which threatened the world. So that was the narrative. Even though they placed that, that tyrant in power themselves. Neither would we expect the US or NATO to be so candid as the state that their intervention in Libya was influenced by the fact that Libya was until recently Africa's fourth largest producer of oil, possessing one of the continent's largest oil reserves at some 44 billion barrels, or that it sits on the Nubian sandstone aquifer, an immensely vast underground sea of fresh water. Now, theirs is a humanitarian intervention to protect civilian lives. Now in this context I am reminded of an extraordinary speech entitled The Dividends of International Justice given by Carla Del Ponte, the then Chief Prosecutor of the ICTY at the offices of the investment bank Goldman Sachs on the 6th of October 2005, and I quote, It is dangerous for companies to invest in a state where there is no stability. 
where the risk of war is high and where the rule of law does not exist. This is where the long-term profit of the United Nations work resides. We are trying to help create stable conditions so that safe investments can take place. In short, our business, this is a prosecutor speaking, our business is to help you make good business. International justice is cheap. Our annual budget is well under 10% of Goldman Sachs' profit during the last quarter. So I can offer you, a prosecutor, high dividends for a low investment. What is this about? Thus, in conclusion on this part, in effect you might say that the white man's burden of the 19th century has morphed in the 21st century to become the West's civilizing mission to bring the benefits of human rights, international justice, an end to impunity and humanitarianism, creating in the process an unholy alliance between human rights activists such as Human Rights Watch and international and Amnesty International on the one hand and Global Capital on the other. Let's move on then to humanitarian intervention, my third proposition. In an article in the University of Toledo Law Review in 1992, volume 23, winter 1992, David Sheffer, former ambassador at large for war crimes in the Clinton administration, currently professor of international law at Northwestern University in Chicago, wrote this. There is a critical need to re-examine humanitarian intervention in the context of contemporary events. There was a time prior to World War II when unilateral military intervention for strictly humanitarian purposes was regarded as legitimate by a large community of international law scholars and was arguably embodied in customary international law. Following World War II, the UN Charter's prohibition on the use of force in cases of self-defense or at the direction of the Security Court Council had the effect of generally delegitimizing humanitarian intervention. In the post-Cold War world, however, a new standard of intolerance for human misery and human atrocities has taken hold. To argue today that the norms of sovereignty, non-use of force, and the sanctity of internal affairs are paramount to the collective human rights of people, are paramount to the elective collective human rights of people whose lives and well-being are at risk, is to avoid the hard question of international law and to ignore the march of history. Now there's nothing at all new about this. It has in fact a venerable tradition and has consistently been a guiding imperial principle regularly invoked to justify aggression when other pretexts are lacking. 
Thus NATO's military support to the Libyan rebels, as well as its sustained bombardment of Libya, on the cover of UN Security Council Resolution 1973, ostensibly to protect the Libyan people from Gaddafi's wrath, is legally and morally criminal in that NATO is yet again applying double standards and violating international law. As it condemns the alleged excesses by the Libyan government, NATO is being complicit to the crimes also reportedly being committed by the favored rebels, including the mass killing of black Africans said to be mercenaries in Gaddafi's pay. <laughs> Meanwhile, NATO is also trying to legit legitimize regime change in international law. Such conduct by the self-anointed purveyor of salvation and hope you may think is most disturbing and deserves condemnation in the strongest terms. Concerning the regime change agenda, NATO is deliberately overstretching the ambit of UN Security Council Resolution 1973 in order to oust Gaddafi from power. That was never part of what the Security Council signed up to. That resolution in part incorporated the international humanitarian law norm, the responsibility to protect. The principle that, as a last resort, the international community could legitimately use force against another country in order to avoid gross human rights violations. The relevant part of the resolution authorized all United Nations member countries to, and I quote, take all necessary measures to protect civilians and civilian populated areas on the threat of attack in the Libyan Arab Jamaria. Foreign occupation was, however, specifically excluded from the alliances purported no boots on the ground declaration. We now know, and everybody now knows, that there was as much truth in that claim of no boots on the ground as the claim that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Everybody knows that the British and French have got special forces on the ground in Libya, contrary to that UN Special Security Council resolution. Proposition number four. And my subheading for this is lesser breeds without the law. Because you see, there is this unspoken truth about international criminal law as currently practiced. And that truth is this. Certain individuals from certain countries of origin will never find themselves indicted before an international criminal tribunal. Come on, let's get real. Everybody knows the war in Iraq was illegal, but I'd like a show of hands. How many of you honestly think my former Prime Minister Tony Blair or former President Bush 
will ever be put on trial. Let's see, who believes it will ever happen? Now how many of you think they are guilty of war crimes, given the hundreds of thousands who have died in Iraq? Let's see. That is, as we all recognize, the reality of the situation. Right as the world goes is only in question between equals in power. While the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. This is the fundamental operating principle of international criminal law, rooted not in their commitment to justice, but in their vastly superior economic and political and military power, and their control of the global opinion-forming agencies. The fact is, that ruling elites can violate laws with impunity, while members of subject classes will be punished. Contrast bankers and rioters in contemporary Britain. Contrast the US and Britain, or indeed Israel, as opposed to Liberia, Côte d'Ivoire, or Libya on an international level. Acts are defined as criminal because it's in their interests, or at least not against their interests, the interests of a ruling elite. Now, the counter-argument might well be, well, surely you're not suggesting that the oppression of these poor African people under dictators should continue. That's not my argument. Africans know better than anybody else how important human rights are. Going back to Bokassa Mobutu and the other bloodstained dictators who the West install in power and maintain for decades. So human rights as a policy initiative from the West is very new indeed. They turned a blind eye to its abuses for decades during the Cold War when it suited their interests. So let's not be fooled by that. And let's just go back another step in understanding this rights-based philosophy. Because there is a contradiction at the heart of the West's current claim to be spreading the word of human rights. Because in the West's historical relationship with the colonies, the West had favored what one writer called a benevolent exercise of administrative discretion rather than the recognition of fundamental rights. And it's instructive to look back at the last century from the vantage point of this new rights-based millennium and recognize that by the middle of the 20th century there are only three countries in the world with legal systems based upon the common law tradition, which gave constitutional protection to human rights. They were the United States, India, and Ireland, all of whom had secured their independence from British rule through armed struggle and protest, all of whom, as a consequence, accorded rights a special place in their constitutional culture, 
no doubt because they'd been hitherto so emphatically denied them. Yet by a curious irony, as the tide of decolonization swept through, for example, the British Empire in the 1950s, the British state was quick to insert fundamental rights modeled on the European Convention into the constitution of all of the newly independent states of Africa and the Caribbean. So why was it that a set of rights thought at one time to be inimical to British traditions of justice was nonetheless considered appropriate for continental Europe and the Commonwealth? Now my reasoning on this, that is this. As colonizers, the British state could not afford to provide ammunition to subject people for use in questioning the legitimacy of British rule. However, upon independence, the same British state recognized that it had to establish the conditions for a free market, which alone could continue to guarantee free access to sources of raw materials for its industries at home. They couldn't afford for these newly independent countries to suddenly start nationalizing their resources. What's going to happen to the British sugar industry, Tate and Lyle, with all its assets in the Caribbean? Because at a fundamental level, as lawyers, we have to recognize the relationship between constitutionally guaranteed rights and the individualism it promotes on the one hand and certain forms of economic organization as exemplified by the United States. That connection should not be forgotten. But moving on from that, there is nothing universal about Western states' claims to support universal human rights. And I'm coming back to the topic now of lesser breeds without the law. Instead, the claim is based on the assumption that some states are more civilized than others. Thus, when the former British Foreign Secretary, the late Robin Cook, was asked on BBC Newsnight shortly after Britain had signed up to the Rome Treaty, he was asked this, whether the newly constituted ICC might one day indict Western leaders for their decision to go to war in Iraq. He retorted, outraged and indignant, and I quote, if I may say so, this is not a court set up to bring to book prime ministers of the United Kingdom or presidents of the United States, I quote, so that we should note that the guardians of international justice have yet to find a single crime committed by a great white northern power against people of color, for example. Equally, the idea of responsibility to protect and the end of impunity have never been extended by the Western media or its intellectual elites to encompass crimes committed by these same powers, for example, in Iraq. 
In reality, international criminal justice is governed by the law of gravity. It always travels from top to bottom, from north to south, never in the other direction. Consequently, it is vital that we appreciate the critical role that racism plays in this discourse. Now in that regard, and I note the time, so I'm going to short circuit certain things. We have to recognize the centrality of selectivity in this process. That is, selectivity of denunciation. Which regimes do they denounce? Look for example, at the difference in the treatment during the course of this Arab Spring between Gaddafi in Libya, what happened in uh, Egypt, what happened in Bahrain and is still going on, and what's happening in Syria. How is it that the West only chose to intervene in Libya? Why is it that Saudi Arabia sent its troops into Bahrain to uphold an oppressive regime. Where's the condemnation from the Western media? Why? Because Saudi Arabia is a major ally of the West, as is Egypt. And equally, they don't want to go into Syria. Why? It's going to destabilize Israel, their Middle Eastern policemen's northern border. They're already having difficulty on their southern border because of what's happened in Israel. So that's why they do not intervene, whilst Assad is killing his own people by the dozen. Selectivity of denunciation. There's also selectivity of investigation and also selectivity of prosecution and selectivity in terms of impunity. Because despite all this talk of an end to impunity, it turns out that all of the ICC indictments have been issued against Africans. Yet even within Africa, this selectivity is nuanced in that it carefully excludes Uganda's Yoweri Museveni and Rwanda's Paul Kagame, both of whom have much blood on their hands, but they're immune from prosecution because they're highly valued clients of the West. Now, that selectivity informed the introduction to our closing written submissions to the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Because we introduced our final written submissions by saying this, the prosecution of Charles Taylor before the Special Court for Sierra Leone has been irregular, selective and vindictive from its inception. Examined from any vantage point imaginable, the case against Taylor has at its core political roots and motives and the inexorable determination of the United States and Great Britain to have Taylor removed and kept out of Liberia at any cost. Indeed, this case directly raises the question of whether the judicial process can be fashioned into a political tool for use by powerful nations to remove 
democratically elected leaders of other nations that refuse to serve, serve as their handmaidens and footstools. Now, I mentioned right at the beginning that as part of this last proposition, I wanted to speak about how some of the legal norms which, is, uh, which the West seek to impose on certain uh, 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 countries is totally inappropriate in cultural and in other terms. Let's take, for example, two, two examples. Firstly, the idea of command responsibility. Now, command responsibility is a mode of liability at international law. So if a general gives orders of the troops carry out a massacre in Srebrenica, for example, the general's responsible. But that's all well and good in a Western army where there are clear hierarchies, from general down to uh, colonel through major and so on. How do you apply that thinking to the kind of ragtag militias in Cote d'Ivoire, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in places like Beria and Sierra Leone in the past. How much control, given the nature of those organizations, can be said to be exerted by the man or woman at the top? And yet we're imposing this legal norm on something which can't bear the weight of it. Take another example, child soldiers. Child soldiers have been a feature of conflicts throughout Africa, and indeed beyond Africa, in Asia, for decades, because of the nature of those societies, where childhood is not as, as cherished as it is in the West. And yet, I'm not saying that it should not be made criminal, but to what extent does international law take account of those cultural and historical differences? It doesn't. Now, I want to conclude now by just saying this, that the abuse of international law arises because there is no link between international criminal law and the people over whom it claims to have jurisdiction. The possibilities of its subjects bringing political pressure to bear if there are abuses are hugely limited. When one observes the military intervention of the US and NATO around the world, it's important that we remind ourselves that Nuremberg was an innovation in its prosecution and conviction under the criminal law for planning and executing a war of aggression. And that war of aggression was judged at Nuremberg to be not only an international crime, but I quote, the supreme international crime, differing only from other war crimes in that it contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. Now, that recognition in Nuremberg was brought about because of the violent inhumanity of settler colonialism. It took the overtly racist conquest of the Third Reich to bring on the criminality of colonialism. 
Hitler had brought that very European mode of thinking to its ultimate conclusion. How is it then that half a century after the conclusion of World War II, we still have difficulty assigning a definition to the crime of war of aggression under the Rome Statute? They still can't agree on a definition. Why? Guess whose interest it serves for wars of aggression not to be criminalized? Who is till this day prosecuting such wars of aggression around the world? So whose interest does it serve? Thank you.